Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, and Michael Corleone. Names you commonly hear here in church, right? Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, Michael Corleone. What is shared in common between these three figures? Sun Tzu, uh, the Chinese military strategist. Machiavelli, the Italian uh, politician and philosopher. Michael Corleone, the fictional character from the film The Godfather. Well, they're all credited with the famous saying that I'm going to start and I'm going to ask you guys to finish. The familiar saying starts like this. Keep your friends close, but... Keep your enemies closer. Yeah, you guys are sharp this morning, boy. Let's go. But it is possible that we don't even realize how close our enemies uh, truly are. Why, after all, in a gathering such as ours here this morning, we're bound to have people who, in society at large, are portrayed as enemies, right? Democrats and Republicans, supporters of Black Lives Matter and the apparent response or rebuttal, uh, all lives matter. Those who cast a ballot in favor of President-elect Trump and those who voted for no other reason than to oppose President-elect Trump. But these socially constructed and socially concerned divisions aren't what I'm talking about this morning. Again, I ask, is it possible that we don't realize how close our enemies truly are? And is that in part because for all the division perpetuated by the media, we don't even realize who our enemies truly are? To this end, the author of today's text is going to be incredibly helpful for us today. So if you will, open in your Bibles with me to the letter of Jude. It's second to last in the New Testament, right before Revelation, the letter of Jude. If you've downloaded the City Church app, um, or even if you haven't, take a minute now to download it, City Church EBV. Uh, you can find the Bible tab at the bottom of the homepage, or you can go directly to Sermons. And then something worth fighting for, and you can pull up Jude 1, 8 through 16. That will allow you to see uh, the text that we're going to be reading this morning, and it'll also allow you to follow along with my sermon notes. Uh, Briefly, for those of you who are new, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. On behalf of everyone that calls City Church home, we want to welcome you guys and thank you for being here with us this morning. We just started last weekend a brand new series entitled Something Worth Fighting For, which in I'll be preaching through the entire letter of Jude. This is part two. Before this series, uh, and you can ask the faithful around here, we were in nearly a year-long study uh, entitled The Last Days of Jesus Christ, going verse by verse through the entire second half of the Gospel of Mark, and our lead pastor, Jeff Kincaid, led us through that. That entire series is fully indexed on our website, citychurchevv.com. I encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, Jeff really did a phenomenal job working verse by verse through that much of Scripture. And being back in the pulpit myself for a few consecutive weeks, I really admire and respect the work that he does and that he's done. All right, now let's turn our attention back to Jude. I have a few comments before we start in today's text at verse 8. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7, which lead us to this point. 
If you missed that sermon, you can find it uh, in our app, on our website, or on iTunes. It'll benefit your understanding of today's sermon and the series uh, as a whole. In short, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, is writing to the entire church, all disciples, all followers of Jesus, not just a select group in a select location. He wanted to write to them about the common salvation that they share, made available to all by Jesus through his completed work in his life, death, and resurrection. But Jude didn't write about what he wanted, but rather what they needed. Namely, as Eddie mentioned just a second ago, uh, to contend for the faith. Verses 5 through 7 serve as a serious warning for ungodly men which was necessary to contend for the faith because these ungodly men had slipped in secretly among the church. And verses 5 through 7, which we ended on last week, serve again as a serious warning. Jude reminds the church that Israel, although they were uh, liberated by God, miraculously led out of Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea, that still some did not believe. And consequently, they perished. Some angels who lived in the presence of God, who were given a portion of authority by God, chose to rebel against him, and they've been chained and locked up, waiting judgment. Lastly, Jude tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in and pursued sin, which led to their punishment, not only in time, but into all of eternity. It's out of these realities that we pick up in verse 8, where Jude is continuing to write about the ungodly who had secretly slipped in among the church. Now, uh, before we pick up at verse 8, I have to say something, uh, just to clarify before we get into it. In the words of an old Scottish preacher, and we're going to put this up here on the screen, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I say that because really there's a lot in the verses that we're going to be dealing with today that could get us off into the theological periphery, away from what's primary. For our purposes this morning, uh, drifting away from what's primary into the periphery uh, would only serve to confuse or defeat uh, the listeners. Or to make you think that somehow I know something about the Bible that you don't know, which surely you could figure out on your own if you were uh, fortunate enough to have as much time to study the Word as I do. So, with that said, uh, I'm not interested in dealing with the periphery. I want to deal with what's primary. One more thing. There are a host of literary genres throughout the Bible. Each letter or book or account isn't made up with the same mechanics. Does that make sense? You guys with me still? All right now. And that's really important to be aware of as you come to consideration of the scriptures or studying your Bible. For instance, some of the genres throughout the Bible include history, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, law, and letters. The mechanics of all of those are very different. Within the framework of Jude, we'll see several genres going on at the same time. And again, that's important for our understanding because that happens all within a letter. We're going to find history, prophecy, poetry, and a letter all going on at the same time. I want to make sure that we remember 
uh, in the words of Alistair Begg, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I have no interest in dragging us off into the periphery, so I'm going to work hard to see what's primary, and I'll draw your attention to that using three categories that I want you to look through as we observe the text today. I want you to see that Jude tells us that the ungodly are false teachers. That's the first thing. I want you to see that Jude tells us that the ungodly have been foretold. That's the second thing. And I want you to see that thirdly, Jude tells us how the ungodly function. So false, foretold, and function. Now if you would, uh, after no further ado, let's pick it up in verse 8. And just so you know, the parentheses that are added uh, in your notes and on the screen, they're my parentheses for the sake of clarification. Uh, Verse 8. In the very same way, again, as Israel, the angels, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings or heavenly realities. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people, the ungodly, slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, the ungodly. They have taken the way of Cain, and they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people, the ungodly, are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They, the ungodly, are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They, the ungodly, are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, the ungodly. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them, the ungodly, of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people, the ungodly, are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And if you feel like you're drowning, I'm going to throw you a a line to pull you up here. I want us to see that what is main uh, is plain and what is plain is main. Again, I'll tease that out through the three categories, false, foretold, and function. I want you to see that these ungodly are false teachers, that they've been foretold, and I want you to see how they function. And just as a side note, I mean, as I was studying for today's text, uh, I like went to popular Christian teachers' websites and their blogs and their sermon indexes, and like a lot of these dudes aren't touching this stuff. Uh, And you may feel how they feel, like, ugh, I don't know if it's worth getting into all of this. But again, I think that the main things are the plain things, and we'll see that as we proceed. First, we're going to see false teachers. And we find that in verse 8, 10, and 15. We'll bring this up on the slide again. On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people reject 
authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. Or again, heavenly realities, things that are unseen. They slander whatever they do not understand. They speak defiant words against God. We'll start with just the one phrase right there. Their dreams. Their dreams stand in contrast to the revelation of God. As we saw last week in verse 3, the revelation of God is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's no clear indication to exactly what these ungodly people were teaching. Uh, The Jude was concerned about drawing their attention that they're false teachers. But we do discover various false teachings and false teachers throughout the New Testament record. One thing that all false teaching shares in common is that all false teaching denies the sufficiency of Christ alone. Does that make sense? Word up. So, for example, here are three prominent false teachings that we discover throughout the New Testament. Legalism, Gnosticism, and asceticism. Say that pretty word with me. Asceticism. All right now. So first we're going to start with legalism. That's the first false teaching that we find in the New Testament. And there are hordes of them. I'm only talking about three. Legalism preaches a gospel with the addition of obedience. Like we discover in Acts 15. Legalists, or Judaizers as they're called, travel to teach believers in Jesus that unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1. Legalism preaches Jesus plus obedience equals salvation. That's legalism. Second, Gnosticism. Gnosticism preaches a gospel with the addition of special or secret knowledge or information. Again, we see this in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul compels his apprentice, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. There it is, that secret or special knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Gnosticism, get this, preaches Jesus plus special or secretive knowledge or information equals salvation. And then that pretty word again, asceticism. Asceticism holds that sin is inherent to the material nature of our bodies. So it preaches a gospel with the addition of self-mutilation. You guys see the film or read the book Da Vinci Code? Another you know, homeboy that stays beating his back. That's asceticism. That's asceticism. And we see Paul mention this in Colossians 2. He says to the believers in Jesus, holding tightly to this one gospel, since you died with Christ, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? These rules are based on merely human commands and teachings. They have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and here it is, their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value asceticism preaches jesus plus self-mutilation self-denial self-loathing 
equals salvation. These false teachings pervert the complete work of Jesus. Jesus' work is completed. It's finished. It's accomplished, finalized, carried out, fulfilled. And that, friends, is the good news of the gospel. False teaching perverts that good news by adding to the completed work of Jesus, indicating that somehow his work, in fact, is incomplete. And somehow the work that Jesus wasn't able to finish was left up to us. The Son of God, incapable of carrying it out, and somehow you and I are supposed to get it done. That's not good news, right? In light of such false teaching, here's what we discover in Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even, listen to this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be under God's curse. The New English translation takes that phrase, under God's curse, and says, let him be condemned to hell. Paul is saying, if I preach a gospel of Jesus plus anything equals salvation, let me be condemned to hell. Paul says, if angels come down from heaven and preach a gospel of Jesus plus anything equals salvation, let the angels be condemned to hell. What gospel have you heard before today? What gospel did you grow up hearing in church? What gospel did you hear in society? What gospel have you heard in culture? Have you heard a gospel of Jesus plus? What gospel are we preaching here at City Church? Gospel fluency of Christ alone must be the heartbeat of the church. Let me say that again. Gospel fluency of Christ alone must be the heartbeat of the church, not Jesus plus obedience, not Jesus plus good works, not Jesus plus sacrifice, not Jesus plus baptism, not Jesus plus the absence of bad behavior or bad language or bad decisions or bad company. Gospel fluency of Christ alone must be the heart of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, believers in the Lord Jesus, you must be fluent in the gospel. Lest we be dragged into the foolishness and the falsehood and the fabrications of the dreams of godless men and women who have secretly slipped in among the church and deny that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. In addition to their dreams, they stand in contrast to the revelation of God. There at verse 8, they reject authority, which was made clear last week as we saw what these ungodly men believed, namely that they do not believe, which you see there at Jude 1, verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord, and they heap 
abuse on celestial beings or heavenly realities. They slander whatever they do not understand. We're given insight into this elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2. The person without the spirit, or as the ESV translates it, the natural man, does not accept things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The natural man, and there may be some of you here this morning who don't believe in Christ, who don't have the Spirit, think everything that I'm saying is nonsense, straight up. I'm okay with that. I'm aware of that. That's the condition of all men who were born into the likeness of Adam. These ungodly men don't understand the revelation of God as articulated in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so what we see at verse 15 is that they speak defiant words against God. Okay, 8, 10, and 15. These are some proof texts that show us why and how these ungodly men are classified as false teachers. And as we saw last week, they've secretly slipped in among the church, which we need to be aware of, but we don't need to be frightened by. We don't need to be concerned by or shook up about because as Jude helps us understand, this was foretold, which brings us to our second heading, first false, second foretold, which we see, and we may have to tease it out there at verse 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. There's that foretelling about them, about the ungodly. Enoch was born in the line of Adam, six generations after Adam. So Adam was Enoch's great, 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 great grandfather. Enoch prophesied about the ungodly. He foretold their coming, namely what we see at verse 14 and 15. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, the ungodly. Here's what he had to say about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them, the ungodly, of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Fulfilled prophecy, foretelling, is a precious gift that belongs to the church and a source of great assurance for believers. Although prophecy is regularly uh, considered with a negative connotation, right? People hear hear that and they're like, oogie boogie. Because it's usually associated with fear uh, regarding judgment and foolishness associated with new age or modern prophets who claim to have some special revelation from God. Special insights from God, extra biblical information from God. And when I hear people say that they've heard from God, I wonder, man, why haven't I heard from God? For example, self-proclaimed prophets who predict when the world is going to come to an end. I mean, we've seen these guys come and go, right? I remember when I was a shorty, like the first time that I heard, it was a news headline or Twitter and Facebook wasn't around, so it must have been a news headline or on the newspaper or television or whatever. They said, the world's ending. And some preacher 
who preaches in a log cabin church in the hills of West Virginia, know exactly when the date of the end of the world is. If there's been one, there have been a thousand. History proves all of them wrong and will continue to do so. No man or woman knows when the world is going to end, which is a word to Jesus in Mark 13. No one knows but the Father, says Jesus. So if something like that type of prophecy is in your mind when you hear the word prophecy, I stand with you in saying that it's nonsense and it shouldn't be trusted. I'm with you. Power to the people. But I wonder if you've considered the compelling truth of countless other prophecies throughout the Bible record. Like the very first prophecy of Scripture found at Genesis 3.15. You can go home and read this stuff. Uh, for afternoon reading. Genesis 3.15, foretelling the coming of the, the Messiah, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and he himself would be struck. That's the first indication that the Messiah would be hurt in his work to destroy Satan, sin, and death, foretelling the cross. Further, prophecy foretells where the Messiah would be born. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Other famous fulfilled prophecy foretells the coming of the Savior in just fascinating detail. Uh, And Nathaniel didn't tell me that he was going to read from Isaiah 53, which Eddie reiterated that he was pierced for our transgressions. But go home this afternoon and read Isaiah 53. And as you read it, consider that it was written more than 700 years before the coming of Christ. Prophecy regarding the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is just one type of fulfilled prophecy. There are far more to Abraham alone. There were prophecies spoken about a great nation that would come from him, about land that would be given to him, and about the seed of his loins being hope for all of the world. Another type of prophecy is the foretelling of these ungodly people. I want you to see that prophecy doesn't have to be this weird, exclusivist, non-helpful, irrelevant thing. Prophecy is foretelling that's incredibly helpful. And again, it's uh, the foretelling of these ungodly people is something we need to be aware of, but not stunned, shocked, or surprised by. Because again, they have been foretold. False, foretold, and our third heading, how they function. Jude wants us to see how these ungodly people who deny that Jesus is the Christ and use grace as a license for sin... He wants us to see how they function so that we can see them, call them out, be aware of them. In addition to polluting their bodies, rejecting authority, insulting the heavens, slandering whatever they don't understand, taking the way of Cain, which is murder, rushing for profit and being destroyed because of their rebellion, which is all in the text that we read this morning. And we'll bring it up on a slide here at verse 16. These people, the ungodly, are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires and they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. 
And again, loved ones, Jude is writing the church. He's writing the body of believers, the local church, urgently reminding them to contend for the faith because these ungodly people have slipped in. What does the faith have to do with the ungodly? That's what I'd like for you to see clearly as we conclude. As I said uh, last week, the faith is the body of knowledge of who God is. His person, his traits, his characteristics, his heart, his desires, and what he's done for men and women, for you and for me, which reached its culmination in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the fulfillment and the personification of the faith. Check this out. In contrast to the ungodly who are grumblers, Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The ungodly grumble. The God-man was silent. In contrast to the ungodly who are fault finders, Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, blemish, but holy and blameless, completely without fault. The ungodly are fault finders. The God-man finds no fault because he's removed it from us. In contrast to the ungodly who follow their own evil desires, Luke 22 accounts that in anticipation of his crucifixion, on the very eve of his death, Jesus, in such anguish that he was sweating blood, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, not my desire, but yours be done. In contrast, the ungodly who seek out their own evil desire, the God-man, who did away with his will, who did away with his desire to fulfill the call of God. In contrast to the ungodly who boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And if there's a hashtag that needs to be trending in our political times, flatter others for their own advantage may well be it. Philippians 2 testifies that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ungodly boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Jesus didn't consider equality with God, which was his possession, which was his right, something to be used to his own advantage. So while it's a sure reality that the ungodly have slipped in among the church, and while it's possible that we don't realize how close our enemies truly are because we don't know who they are, this doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. Jesus, of all people, who again on the eve of his death sat down around a table to have a meal with his best friends, yet who knew that one of them who had secretly slipped in among them would betray him, who would forsake him for 30 coins with one kiss. Yet this one had a seat, dig this, at Jesus' table, had a place in Jesus' heart. 
loved ones. The church is built on the firm foundation, steadfast and secure. You see that just at the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The God-man dying for the ungodly. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The God-man dies for the ungodly to bring you and me to God. This is the very completed, finished, accomplished, finalized, carried out, fulfilled work of the Lord Jesus that no one can contribute to. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation for any and all who believe. That this Jesus lived the perfect life that all of us should have, but none of us could have. That he died the sinner's death that all of us should, but don't have to. And resurrected, defeating Satan, sin, and death, which is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the very cornerstone of the church throughout all of history. Has been for the last 2,000 years. The church of Jesus, which himself said that he would build. And that the gates of hell would not overcome. The gospel of every stand that we could take, of every line in the sand that we could draw, of every position or party or politician that we could partner with, the gospel is the utmost precious possession of the church. The gospel is something worth fighting for, ladies and gentlemen. Will you pray with me? Father, in fighting that I may enter into in the contending for the faith. I am so thankful uh, that I am shored up, that I'm on the firm foundation of the reality that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. The only thing that I bring to the work of salvation is my sin, which drove you to the cross, Lord Jesus. The ungodly are those who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ and who forsake uh, the grace of Jesus and use it as a license for sin, God, I know that I was there for a long, long time. And I know in the wandering of my heart, even now that I go there often, that I say, you don't know what's best. You are not true. I know what's best. I know what's true. And I rebel against you. I run far from you. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not far. He has come close in the person of his son, Jesus, to complete a work and to offer to all of us hope, reminding us that something worth fighting for is found in nowhere other than the gospel. God, I thank you for your goodness towards us, that you have uh, built the church, that you sustain the church, and that it is wholly dependent upon you, not me, not us. We're thankful for that assurance in these troubling, troubling times. It's in your son's name we pray, Lord.